Good? Clear as mud? Rock and roll. We are in Acts 13 today, and we are continuing our series, not just in Acts, but in this specific section of Acts, we started one particular scene or narrative a few weeks ago when we met, and we're finishing out that same scene. So if you recall, we're in the section of Acts that that represents Paul's first missionary journey. So Paul and Barnabas have been set apart by the church at Antioch to go and do the work. They've been sent on the mission field, and they've begun traveling. They've made their way up into the region of Galatia, um, and they've come to this city called Antioch. Not the Antioch they were sent from, a different Antioch, Antioch in Poseidon. And when they came to this space, as was their norm, Paul and Barnabas went to the synagogue and began to preach the gospel in that context, and it just landed really well. The people in the synagogue responded with a ton of joy. When they finished teaching, it actually tells us in Acts 13 that the, the folk from the synagogue followed after them and said, come back next week and, and give us, like, preach again. We, we want to hear this gospel message. And if you go and read Paul's sermon here in Acts 13, it's this beautiful example of biblical theology where Paul essentially works his way from Genesis to his day showing how the person and work of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, is a natural continuation of the redemptive work that God has been working for his people from the beginning of time. It's this beautiful explanation of how Jesus kind of crowns the top of the amazing work God has been doing the whole time. And he ends this sermon with this beautiful gospel invitation where he says, guys, Jesus can forgive your sins can set you free. He can give you the kind of freedom that Moses and the law could never give you. It's this beautiful sermon that really, I think, encapsulates the inherent invitation in the gospel message of Jesus. And so we spent time two weeks ago when we were going through this passage talking about the inherent invitational nature of the gospel, that that whether you are just now exploring faith or whether you've been following Jesus for decades, you never get past the invitation of Jesus. Afresh, every day, the invitation of Jesus is in front of you. Come, come to Jesus, be forgiven, be set free, find life, find joy, find freedom every day. You never get past the invitation. No matter what circumstance life brings you, Jesus is always there saying, come all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Beautiful gospel message. Today, we're continuing that same story. So we're picking up here in verse 44 of chapter 13. And this picks up seven days later. It says this, The next Sabbath, so a week later, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. 
And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you have thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirring up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook the dust from their feet against them and went on to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father God, we pray today that you would be our discipler. And we pray as we take a few minutes to consider, to think about your word, that you would be the one who meets with us that you would illuminate your text, that you would draw our hearts gently and softly to the truth of your gospel, that we would be open and receptive to challenge, to rebuke, to conviction, to encouragement, that we would hear from you in a way our hearts need, that we would respond to you in the way our hearts need, and that we would leave this place today having heard from you. God, we love you. We trust you for this work. So we pray it in your name. Amen. All righty. So here's the thing with this text, guys. It's, it's about as simple as it could be. In the beginning of this story, as we saw Paul's ministry and we saw them go and preach this amazing gospel, the, the same gospel, by the way, that all of us heard proclaimed at some point, the same gospel that drew us to the personal work of Christ, the same message, this amazing invitation, we, we saw this worked out. And what we see as this text continues is that some people, when it gets down to it, are not willing to identify themselves with Christ. Our text today, about as plainly as it can be, is about the truth that in Christ, you have a fundamentally new identity. In Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new is come. In Christ, you are something new. The identity, by the way, is son. The identity is kingdom of God. We are all tempted to still identify ourselves by the things of this world. But when you do so, when you identify yourself by the things of this world, rather than the person and work of Jesus, it will always, always lead you to frustration, to division, to discontent. The, 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 pure, like the, the plain fact of this church is that when we value the things of earth over and above the things of the Spirit, we are asking for trouble. Because those things, no matter how good they are, are simply not enough to found an identity on. You are a creature made in the image of God. You you bear the greatness, like the, the image of who he is. There is too much to you 
to find completeness, joy, satisfaction, identity in the things of this world. And so when you try to, it'll always leave you hanging. It'll always cause problems. So anyway, that's where we're going today. We're in this story. We, we picked up a week later, right? Gospel invitation happens. People are super receptive. They say, please come back next week and preach. And our story picks up next week when they come back to preach. The text tells us that the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. I love that phrase because apparently the invitation of Jesus to have your sins forgiven and be set free is more persuasive than we give it credit. Amen? These guys show up and they preach one week and the next week the whole city is there to hear this message. Lots of folk have turned up to hear Paul preach again. Now, not just the established Jewish congregation, and not just the Gentile worshipers, because Acts 13 makes it pretty clear that the synagogue in Antioch is a pretty diverse synagogue, but pretty much the whole city. And immediately things start to go to pot. When the leaders of the synagogue see the crowd, the text says their response is jealousy. Jealousy. Now, we got to stop and talk about this for a second because this has implications. See, they see the crowd, they see the whole city showing up to hear the word of God preached, right? The whole church showing, or the whole city showing up to church to hear the word of God preached, and they are jealous. Jealous. Now, there's a couple layers here. You have to remember, these folk have been leading the synagogue for who knows how long. They're there leading the people and preaching the word every week, day in and day out. Now, now Judaism is not inherently like an evangelistic religion, but it does have like an ability for outsiders to convert and join. And for whatever reason, in this city, in Antioch of Poseidon at least, this, this congregation was making inroads into the Gentile community. We're told that this particular synagogue has a variety of folk in various states of engaging Judaism. There are Jews by birth, there are converts to Judaism, there are God-fears, which are people who are going in the process of pursuing conversion but haven't gotten there yet. There are people who are exploring the faith. It is safe to say that these synagogue leaders genuinely care about ministry to their immediate community. It's important to say that. It's really easy just to make the good guys and bad guys in some of these stories, right? But we're talking about some men who faithfully serve this city. And here, this rabbi shows up from out of town, who no one knows, with a message about Messiah and forgiveness of sins that's nothing like anything they've ever heard before. And one week later, the whole city shows up to hear him talk. It's not honestly that hard to see how this could spark some jealousy, right? Here these guys are faithfully working week in and week out. And Paul shows up and one week later, everybody's there to listen. But it's actually more than that. It's more than just this simple success jealousy that's actually more nefarious than that. Because look, look how this immediately escalates. These leaders begin to publicly contradict Paul and mock him in front of the crowds. 
The same leaders who invited him to speak a week prior, who said, please come back, tell us more about this. Now the city shows up and they begin to contradict him and speak over him and mock him in front of the crowds. Because on some level, this is about the base jealousy of their immediate success in ministry. But more than that, deeper than that, what this is about is that Paul's message, the real gospel message, the invitation of Jesus, is an open invitation. It is an invitation to everyone. Jesus calls us all exactly as we are, exactly where we are, to approach him with repentance and faith and find grace and life and forgiveness and freedom. This is the very heart of what upsets these guys. These guys are Jewish, whether it's by birth because God loved them and chose them, or by conversion because they loved God and worked hard for him. These guys have put a lot of stock into what it means to be God's people. This has taken work, submission, dedication, and this guy Paul shows up out of nowhere saying the invitation of God is for everyone? Yeah, right. Yeah, right. But this exposes the heart of these religious leaders. They're so used to, they're so comfortable finding their identity as a set-apart spiritual people that when they find out that actually everyone is equal at the foot of the cross of Jesus, they can't handle it. Rather than celebrating that the table of Jesus is open to all weary sinners, they are angry that the riffraff have been invited to sit next to them. And so their response is to fight Paul. And look at this. To reject the gospel invitation itself. Whew. Beloved, this is a tragedy. A tragedy. A group of people who are so caught up in their religious identity that when they realize God is more gracious than they thought he was, they don't just reject the people coming to him. They reject him. Oh, look how Paul responds. He speaks out all the more boldly to the audience. And to these religious leaders, he calls out exactly what they are doing. He says they are thrusting aside the gospel of Jesus. They have deemed themselves unworthy of eternal life unworthy of salvation. These religious leaders and their desire to exclude all these outsiders from the privilege of faith end up excluding themselves from Jesus' salvific work. Because this should be haunting to read. Haunting. But Luke gives us this amazing contrast to these blind and lost religious leaders. You see, in our text, Paul quotes Isaiah 49, describing his and Barnabas' ministry. Do you see this? A light to the Gentiles, that all the nations may be saved. This is interesting. You see, in this quote, Paul does two things. Firstly, he flatly rejects the actual premise of the religious leader's opposition. Jesus is, in fact, inviting all peoples into his kingdom. In fact, he's been talking about, God has been talking about the inclusive invitation of his redemptive work for generations going all the way back to the prophets. 
So their, their base level exclusion is totally out of line with the teaching of Scripture. But the second thing Paul does is a little more subtle and I think a little more interesting or important for us. You see, Isaiah 49 is a prophecy, but it's not a prophecy about the church. Go read it. Isaiah 49 is a prophecy about the, what the Jews called the servant of Israel. It's a prophecy about the ministry of Jesus. It's a prophecy about who he is, Jesus himself. He is the one, Jesus is the light to all nations. His work, his spirit, his gospel brings the nations to salvation. But Paul has zero problem here slapping the label of this prophecy directly on to his and Barnabas's ministry in this city. Do you notice that? That's a little bold. But the reason is super simple. I love this. See, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barney, these guys are so identified with Jesus in this moment that Jesus' ministry is their ministry. Paul saw himself as in Christ, over and above anything else in his life. So because of that, Jesus is about the work of calling all peoples unto himself there in Antioch. So so was Paul. Jesus is about this work, so so am I. Paul's identity was firmly and only in the person and work of Jesus in that moment. So he's able to cut through the opposition, the anger, the injustice, the insults, and simply proclaim the gospel to those who are in desperate need of it. And look what happens as a result. Two distinct results of Paul and Barnabas's self-identification with Christ above all else. First, God moves in power. Do you see this? The text says the Gentiles in the audience, these, these outsiders who were not good enough for the synagogue, who, who had raised up such jealousy, these folk, the, the not good enoughs in the audience, they rejoice and glorify God and his word. And look at this, God saves them. Come on. Paul and Barnabas identified themselves with Christ above everything else. And the result is that God's work of salvation moves out into the world and the dead are drawn to life. And there are brothers and sisters who you and I will see at the wedding feast of the Lamb because of this moment, because of the work that God was doing in this moment. How powerful is that? brothers and sisters, people part of the same family as you and I. Because of this, two guys standing up against opposition and saying, Christ alone, Christ above everything else. And look what God does. My goodness. Now, by the way, this is one of like the absolute like textbook proof texts for uh, God's sovereignty and those things, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that with you guys today. <laughs> You can text me later if you want to get into that debate. Uh, it is fun and interesting. But for our purposes, we need to see this. In this moment, gospel faithfulness, identity with Christ above all else results in people being brought into the kingdom. And it also results in greater opposition. So the Jewish leaders see this 
And it makes them even worse. They, they stir up even more opposition and persecution such that Paul and Barnabas have to leave the city. But look how the text ends. These disciples, these new believers, they are filled with joy and filled with the Holy Spirit. Beloved, this is Luke's way of telling us that what is left behind in Antioch of Poseidon after Paul and Barnabas leave is the church of Jesus Christ. That the work of God was successful in this community. That that those who God was seeking and calling, they worked. And when they leave, there's a church in this city. A fellowship of believers. A fellowship of resurrected saints that didn't exist before. What a gift. What a joy. What a story. And I think this clearly calls us to step back and think about identity for a moment. You see, these Jewish folk were very comfortable in a very specific religious identity. These are the Jews of the synagogue. They're chosen by God. They are devout. They're set apart from the world. You can go and study the the rabbinic synagogue-centric Judaism of this day. These are devout people who live disciplined and holy lives dedicated to the glory of God. But this identity became so precious to them. We are God's set-apart people. That when God sent messengers to speak something new, they couldn't hear it. They chose a religious identity over and above the God of that religion. Hear that for a second. So comfortable in their identity as the Jews of the synagogue. That when God comes along and says, but I want to bring more people in, they tell them to shut up and be quiet. They're busy being religious. It's intense, guys. Because I can't overstate this. This is a story where people chose religion over and above God. And that is tragic. It's tragic in a very real and literal sense. They missed the invitation of God and the salvation of God itself. What a stark contrast with Paul and Barnabas who have identified themselves so much with Christ that they're willing to take any step, any means to move forward proclaiming the good news of Christ. Willing to say Christ above all next to these men who say our synagogue above all. This is why Paul could so boldly proclaim when he wrote to the Philippian church to live as Christ, to die as gain. When it gets down to it, Paul's life shows us what identity in Christ is. What it means to identify with Christ above all else. To live as one who is truly in Christ. So deeply rooted in the person and work of Jesus that he can step out from underneath everything. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul has this amazing section where he recounts all his religious credentials. How, how he's such a good, loyal, faithful, godly, awesome Jew. How he had every right to do what these men did and say, look at me, look how set apart I am, look how holy I am. 
And as he looks at all of that on the other end, someone, as someone who's in Christ, who's been washed by the blood and identified with the personal work of Jesus, he says, because that, that stuff is, that stuff is garbage to me. The actual term he uses is dirty toilet paper. That stuff is worthless to me. My heritage, my religious training, my, my systematic theology, my academic credentials, my ministry accolades, those things just need to be flushed. All I have, all I need, all I want is Jesus. Him and him crucified, me and his, him in my place, his righteousness on me. This is the message of Paul, the message of the gospel. And beloved, I believe this is God's word for us today. It's simply this. In Christ, you are a new creation. In Christ, you are a new creation. Because I know that's the kind of catchphrase that is, that is churchy enough that we can hear that and we can amen that and we can sing that, but not really let that wash deep down into our bones. I want you to hear this, beloved. In Christ, you are a new creation. I want you to consider this. Poor identity has disastrous effects. But in Christ, the old is gone. You are no longer who you were. We miss this easily. I miss this. Because we still struggle with sin. We, we still have vestiges of our old self. But if the scripture is true, beloved, which, spoiler alert, it is. If the scripture is true, then you in Christ are new. Something fundamentally changes about who you are in your new life in Jesus. Who you are in Christ is who you actually are. Who you are in Christ. That is who you actually are. Nothing else can supersede that. Nothing else can, can speak that much truth about your person. Beloved, in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has gone, and the new has come. Later in his life, Paul wrote a letter to the Roman church, and he said this about our identity in Christ versus our identity in this world. He says, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to, to fall back into fear, but you have received here, this church, the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. We are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer in him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Beloved, do you see this? In Christ, your identity is no longer of this world. You are not, to use Paul's terms, of the flesh. This world, its concerns, its sins, its selfishness, its vision, its comfort, its, its, its trappings, these do not define you or identify you. 
And if you try, if you try to identify yourself by these things, your successes, your hobbies, your comforts, your wealth, your pleasure, your respect, your career, your family, your romance, your sex, Paul could not be more blunt. These things will kill you. Will kill you. They simply aren't enough to build your life upon. They are not a solid enough foundation to live a full life in this broken and sinful and painful world. But, but, you are in Christ. Through the grace of God, through your faith in him, through his salvific work on your behalf, you have a new identity, beloved in Christ. You are sons of God. Now, it's a super important term. And I know that even as I said of it, some of you are mentally substituting daughters for sons. And that's fine, by the way. God won't magically remove your femininity when he brings you into his kingdom. But, but, but Paul uses this term sons instead of children when he, in, in, in the beginning of this text, specifically and on purpose. You see, in both Jewish and Roman culture, an adopted child was given the full legal rights of a birth child, but sons and daughters were given different rights. It's not how it should be, it's not good, but that is how the world worked at this time. Daughters were not included in the legal inheritance of their parents, only sons. The inheritance of a daughter was to be married off to someone decent. But the inheritance of the son, <laughs> amen. But the inheritance of the son was to receive everything that was the father's. As, as, as the father says in the parable of the prodigal son, son, everything that I have is yours. All that I have is yours. This is the adoption of sons. All that I have is yours. A true son with full rights, all of it, a full inheritance. And this is why, this is why Paul says, in Christ, you are adopted as sons of God, full-fledged members of the family of God, children of him, co-heirs with Christ. Whew. Beloved, think about the inheritance of Christ. Think about the faithful work that Christ has done and the reward with which he will be rewarded. Think about Philippians 2, right? Every knee bow, every tongue confess. Think about, think about Colossians 1. We're talking about the God of the universe. Think of the inheritance, the reward, the treasure of Christ. And in him, in his accomplished work on your behalf, you are a co-heir. What the heck? That is insane. That is nonsense. The God of the universe, the creator and sustainer of all things, he's going to bring you, I mean, no offense, but you into his family. He's going to invite you to his table. Not, not out of some weird act of like mercy or like charity, but out of actual love and affection, he's going to make you a full-fledged member of his family, a son. 
with full rights to a full inheritance alongside Jesus Christ? My goodness. Yes. Yes, he is. You see, that's the actual promise of Jesus. That's the actual message of the gospel is that in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. You are adopted as sons, children of God. Beloved, this is the promise of Jesus. What the heck does the world have to offer you that can compare to the glorious riches of our God? What, what can your identity, what can the things that you and I love and chase after, what can they possibly offer in comparison to the promises of Jesus, to the family of God? What riches we have in our sweet Lord Jesus. What an identity we have. A new creation, sons of God, adopted into the family. If, you are in Christ. So I'm going to end with, with two thoughts. The first is this. If you're in this place and you are not in Christ, if you've never submitted to him for salvation and freedom, please hear me when I say this. The invitation is there for you. And he's calling you. It does not happen magically. You must choose to respond to him. You must act out in faith. Just confess, repent, believe, come to him, receive the gift. I would beg you to consider this. It's a tragedy to miss the invitation of Jesus. If that is something that burdens you, something that confuses you, something that scares you, and I would love to talk to you about that. Any one of our pastors, we'd love to meet with you, talk with you, pray with you, help you explore the invitation that Jesus has been put in front of you. We're not going to pressure you. We're not salesmen. We wouldn't be good at it. But seriously, if you're in this space and you're considering that and you just need help thinking through that, please reach out to us. We would love, love to be in that journey with you. But secondly, if you are in this space and you are in Christ, please, don't miss the challenge and encouragement of this text today. Beloved, in Christ, you are a new creation. If you're keeping a bingo sheet, that's like the 25th time I've said it. In Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You are a son of God. So reject the temptation to identify yourself with the things of this world. Reject the temptation to chase after things that you know are lesser. Jesus truly is the only solid foundation. When Jesus was preaching on the kingdom, he had this to say. He said, those who build their lives on me, who take my teaching, my person, my work, they're like someone who builds a house on a stone foundation. Storms come, floods come, but the house stands up. A life built on Christ can withstand the suffering that exists in a broken and sinful world. A life that identifies with Christ before and above all else can withstand the pain and suffering of a broken world. 
But Jesus says, those who do not build their lives on me, those who identify with the lesser things, the things of this world, are like someone who builds a house on sand. It may look solid, it may look great, it may have an open floor plan. But when life gets hard and the flood rains come, it will wash out and it will fall out, fall apart. And Jesus says, how great will the loss be? Beloved, you are, you are too complex, too beautiful, too, too image bearer of God to build your life on lesser things. They won't work. Jesus is the only thing, only thing you can build your life on. So please, beloved, please consider the challenge in front of you today. I'm going to do this. I'm going to ask Emma to come back up. I'm so glad you're visiting us this week, Emma. It's such a gift to have you. She's going to sing another song for us, and I'm going to ask you guys simply to do this as we sing. I want you to consider this invitation today. Consider this challenge today. Man, if you, I mean, if you're in this space and you're just, God is like beat you over the head and you know exactly what it is and you want to stand up and sing and you do right, you go for it. But I want to encourage you. Take a minute, take the time you need to take to be with Jesus and consider the challenge here. How do you identify yourself? What things do you chase after? What things are you building your life upon? You building them on Jesus? You building upon the things of this world, a mixed bag probably? Consider that. Confess that. See what Jesus says to you as you think through those things. And then we'll end our time with communion. Sound good? Pray with me, church. Jesus, you are so good to us. You're so good to us. God, we come to you this space. We confess to you that we are people who love to run to empty cisterns looking for water. We look to be filled by things that we know in our heads can't fill us. We know in our hearts aren't worthy of building our life upon. And yet in the moment, it just seems better. And we run back to them over and over and over. Father, convict us. Draw us to repentance afresh. Draw us to your heart afresh. God, draw us back to the joy of our salvation. To what it means to be in Christ. What it means to identify with you and you alone. God, convict our hearts. Do work in us today. We love you. We trust you. Beloved, do the work you need to do with Jesus. If you need to pray with one of the elders, I'd encourage you as we're singing this song to grab one of us. We'd love to pray with you. But otherwise, sit, sit with the Spirit, do the work you need to do. We'll end out our time.